Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Barry Bettino and Kevin Drewley. This is our April 2023 episode, number 38 all-time. Wherever or however you're listening today, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear more about it for our My Story feature in our magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. And just so you know, you can view past My Story entries and catch up on all the other news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Barry will take us on a deep dive into his feature story on workplace fire drills. We'll also be joined by the National Safety Council's Lori Guasta to talk about fatigue in our latest installment of Five Questions With. And the three of us will also share lessons learned in what else? The What Do We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we examine a feature from the latest issue of Safety and Health Magazine as part of our Deep Dive segment. In our April issue, Barry writes about workplace fire drills and how practicing them regularly can help employers and workers be prepared and safe if the fire alarm sounds in a non-drill situation. So Barry, could you please affix those anti-fog goggles for a secure fit and lead us on this latest deep dive? Surely, Kevin, and thank you kindly for the introduction. So when talking about fire drills with sources for this article, several questions became pretty obvious. When, When a fire alarm goes off, will your workers know what to do? Will they take it seriously? And for safety professionals, will the time and effort that you put into your emergency action plan pay off? Fire drills, first and foremost, should be a key part of any emergency action plan. And Butch Browning, who's the executive director of the National Association of State Fire Marshals, said that fire drills are one of the most important things you can do in safety. And he said the whole purpose of a fire drill is to facilitate quick and accessible egress out of a building in times of emergencies. At Porter Pipe and Supply in suburban Chicago, Justin Sasson is the safety manager there, and he told me he conducts two fire drills a year, one announced and one unannounced. For the first drill, he lets everyone know a week in advance that it's coming via email at a certain time that day. In that email, he'll also share resources, such as policies and procedures for fire drills, evacuation maps, and whatnot. And for the second drill, which he does not announce, except for a few key people in the organization, that day a local fire inspector will stop by and they'll run through the drill together. Now, whether these drills at your workplace are announced or unannounced, they have value to both workers and safety professionals. Now, they provide important opportunities for training and for workers to understand in an emergency situation what they need to do. And Sasson said, the preparedness is what saves the day. You want to make sure that everyone knows what to do if that situation were ever to occur. The process for preparing workers often begins from day one with onboarding. Sasson said that he shares a great deal of information with new employees, things such as the evacuation maps that we mentioned, designated meeting places outside the building, and various policy and procedure documents. And he does that so new workers will have a good base of knowledge. Now, does that mean Everyone is immediately prepared on day one? No. In fact, Sasson said if he was a new employee, he might be a little unnerved if a fire alarm went off because he said, I might just be learning where the bathrooms are in my new workplace. 
I also spoke with Greg Harrington, who is a principal engineer at NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, for this story. And Greg said, going through the steps prior to an emergency, workers have to spend less time making decisions of what am I supposed to do when they're notified of an emergency. And the value in that is that it reduces response time. It'll lead to a more orderly, safer, and likely a more faster evacuation. What are some important considerations for safety professionals when it comes to fire drills? Well, there are, there are many, Kevin, and, and one of the first and most important is having buy-in from company leadership and a culture of safety at your workplace. And Greg Harrington from NFPA, as I mentioned, he said if your company's CEO or president isn't bought in and they don't feel like they have to take part in fire drills, then really why should anybody else feel like they have to take part? So that culture of safety can go a long way toward making sure everyone is prepared. Another thing that safety pros need is a group of allies, uh, folks who are going to jump in and offer a hand during fire drills. An example of that from Justin Sasson at Porter Pipe and Supply is that his safety committee members are among a group that he calls sweepers. And, and these are folks who will grab a two-way radio when the alarms go off and or use their cell phone to, to sweep certain areas of the building and make sure everyone is out during a fire drill. And Sasson even said that uh, frontline managers and company leaders will jump in and assist as well during those times. Uh, this is especially important, guys, for, for larger facilities. For example, Sasson works at a location that's about 300,000 square feet, and he said having some extra sets of eyes and ears can be extremely helpful. There are also unique aspects to consider for employees who have disabilities and need some assistance exiting a building. Sasson said that he has three colleagues, in case someone is on vacation, who help an employee with a disability to ensure their safe evacuation from the facility. And also having a good working relationship with your local fire department and emergency responders is another plus. Before he worked at NFPA, Greg Harrington was in the fire services and he said there are a host of benefits for all parties involved in that relationship. Uh, for example, if you invite your local fire department over to your drills, that can ensure that they know what the building looks like, how it's laid out, where the fire hydrants are located, how they can tie into the sprinkler system if your building does have a sprinkler system. And also it allows them to get to know the key people in your organization. So Barry, how can safety professionals ensure that their workers are ready? Well, regular drills are certainly helpful, Alan. Uh, and as far as the important parts of those drills, you, you have to make sure that workers know where they will exit the building, uh, where the fire extinguishers are located, and where to meet up after exiting the building. One helpful tip in the story uh, that Justin Sasson mentioned was that they picked out landmarks as meeting spots. Uh, for example, there's a pond on their, on their property. Uh, one of the meeting spots is a pond. Uh, there is a large planter box out in the front entrance of their facility. So that's one of the meetup spots. And he said, those images really stick with people when they're exiting the building. Oh, I have to go to the planter box. Oh, my group meets by the pond. So that's always very helpful. If something goes wrong during a drill, Justin Sasson said he, he'll never call out people individually. Instead, he refers to those moments as a quote-unquote coaching counseling moment. And the sources we spoke to provided a, a number of different coaching options as well. So what Sasson will do is he'll walk the floor at his facility and he'll just ask random questions to workers about where would you exit if the alarm sounded right now? Things like that. Harrington suggests presenting some new scenarios during a fire drill, such as 
let's say, putting an orange cone in front of one set of exit stairs, which blocks that path, and make sure workers find another egress option. When it comes to those different scenarios, that also applies to workers in different parts of your facility. So not only do you have office workers and cubicles in your company, you may also have employees who are working with chemicals, with machinery, operating forklift, for example. And workers in all those scenarios need to know things like making sure they contain any chemicals before exiting, lowering a load on a forklift before you exit the building, or shutting down a machine before evacuating. There are plenty of additional details in the story, including some best practices and guidance relating to fire drills and what safety pros can learn from a post-drill review. One other thing I wanted to mention is that NFPA and OSHA both have standards related to fire drills and emergency action plans, and you can check those out in the, in the magazine version of this article. This didn't make the story, but Butch Browning mentioned that fire drills, if we all remember, have been an important part of all of our lives, starting from a young age at school. And in the work setting, these drills are no different. They prepare us to evacuate safely and orderly. And he said, whatever plan you have to get people out of a building to reach safety, it all centers around a drill. Well, thank you, Barry, for your work on this story. There definitely are lots of takeaways for the audience, for sure. And like you say, these drills are things that people have identified with for a long time, well before their, their working lives. If you want to read more about this or other topics, as well as news from around the safety world, please check out the April issue of Safety and Health magazine or visit www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth at nsc.org. We're recording this episode on the cusp of daylight saving time when springing forward might actually mean falling back or adjusting to the lost hour is concerned. But fatigue impacts workers in our overall daily lives beyond just one of the 52 weekends a year. Here to share more about fatigue and its many signs and forms is Lori Guasta, Senior Director, Consulting Services at the National Safety Council. Lori brings more than 20 years of experience to the field and this podcast, and her career before NSC includes time at NIOSH. Lori, we welcome you to the podcast, and thank you for joining us on The Safe Side. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, Lori, the fatigue webpage on the NSC website has a tagline of, you're more than just tired. So with that, what can you tell us about the symptoms of fatigue beyond merely yawning? Yeah, sure. So first, there there are many signs and symptoms of fatigue, and they actually look pretty similar to signs and symptoms of uh, possible substance abuse. Uh, for fatigue and substance abuse, uh, you can notice the signs on a spectrum from being fully alert to impaired to fully impaired. Uh, in, in terms of the physical signs of fatigue, uh, the ones that you can notice more easily might include fidgeting or somebody rubbing their eyes, uh, repeated yawning, uh, even staring blankly. Uh, you might see some frequent and, and long blinks of the eye or, or someone having trouble keeping their eyes open, for example. Um, even head nodding if, if folks are experiencing what they call micro-sleeps from fatigue impairment. Uh, on the cognitive side, this is sometimes a lot more difficult to 
to notice, but you might observe someone in a negative mood, uh, not communicating as much or as they normally do. Uh, you might experience, even in yourself, an experience of uh, lapse in memory, uh, reduced attention, uh, difficulty making decisions. Um, there's some other signs and symptoms on the cognitive side related to a slowed reaction time and, in some cases, increased risk-taking. Uh, but what's really important to remember is that signs and symptoms of fatigue are different for everyone, and no one is exempt. Fatigue uh, affects everybody every day to some degree. We're all affected by fatigue, and many people describe fatigue as a non-static variable, meaning that it's different. It's it's it, it, it even affects the same person differently day to day. Um, there's a lot of contributing factors here that impact our alertness that I'm sure that we'll get into in this conversation. But, you know, a few examples have to do with the quality of sleep that we get to the nutritional value of what we eat, our physical health and, and other issues that we're dealing with day to day. And then that's both at work and outside of work. Lori, can you tell us how fatigue impacts workplace safety and performance, as well as maybe safety during the commute to and from work each day? Oh, sure. Yeah, fatigue definitely impacts workplace safety and performance at work. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a really well-known study out of manufacturing in the late 90s. Uh, researchers Dawson and Reed found that over, uh, it was about 17 or 18 hours awake, <laughs> awake can produce effects similar to being past the legal blood alcohol content limit for driving. This study found that I think it was about 75% of employees had reported being awake for 18 consecutive hours the week before the study was conducted, and almost 30% of them had been reporting uh, being awake for 21 hours. So this is equivalent to showing up to work under the influence of alcohol, right? So the impacts on workplace safety are really clear, just like negative effects on our functioning uh, from consuming alcohol fatigue impacts employees by reducing their ability to function physically and mentally. Um, for the workplace, fatigue uh, leads to a decreased productivity, uh, an increased risk of errors, and a higher risk for incidents. This is, these these um, impacts have been studied for decades now. Uh, re regarding commuting to and from work, this is really important to remember first that transportation-related incidents are the leading cause of all workplace fatalities. Number one, across industries, right? It's, it's how we show up, it's how we get to work and get home. Uh, another research study uh, conducted by the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB, they looked at 10 years of investigations and found that 20% of accidents were related to fatigue, and approximately 40% of all highway crashes involved fatigue drivers. And I, I'm not sure if the NTSB continues to update these stats, but it's worth noting that the National Safety Council has been calculating traffic fatality estimates for 100 years literally since 1913. And this historical data can be found via injury facts, which is hosted on, on the NSC website. Um, and then I, I, I really wanted to point out on that, unfortunately, the present day realities 
um, concerning transportation are really grim. Just yesterday, NSC shared a press release reporting approximately 46,000 motor vehicle deaths in 2022 alone. And compared to pre-pandemic 2018, the mileage death rate has increased nearly 22%. It is it is a huge risk and uh, driving tired, obviously, or fatigued from other sources um, have, have pretty detrimental uh, potential impacts. So this is something I have experience with in, in a prior job. Um, how is fatigue risk accelerated or different for night shift workers or workers who are on an extended or non-traditional schedule? Yeah, sure. This is this is a really important um, factor in studying fatigue as well. Uh, work schedules is considered a primary risk factor, actually, for fatigue. Uh, working more than um, 12 hours a day or 60 hours a week is associated with up to a 37% increased chance of an injury. And that's really important because a lot of our um, manufacturing uh, facilities or mining operations or construction sites, that's pretty 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 normal to work a 12-hour day or 60-plus hours. Um, you might even think of professional services, office workers who or folks working from home are, are typically spending upwards of 60 hours a week nowadays. And so thinking about um, that increased chance of an, indus- of an injury is, uh, is pretty important. Now, night shifters or folks who work rotating shifts, they experience the highest risk for fatigue-related incidents at work. They have the toughest time regulating their internal body clock due to that change in exposure to daylight. That's what our, our circadian rhythm depends on, right? That exposure to light. It takes a while for our bodies and our brains to adjust. And so what happens to folks that are working nights or rotated sh- rotating shifts is something called a circadian desynchronization. It's a fancy word, but it's essentially this feeling similar to jet lag. And some folks can feel that every week, every time they you know, try to uh, get back on a on a new schedule, or or sometimes if they don't have enough rest period in between their next shift starting, they um, it, it's hard to shake that feeling. We accumulate this feeling of sleep debt, they call it. And what's most important to mitigate that risk is to ensure an adequate recovery time or rest time or time off before returning uh, to work for the next shift. Um, there's another risk factor for folks working non-traditional schedules, like you asked, and this really has to do with the start time of a shift. So even for day shifters, we all experience these natural dips in our circadian rhythm. So it's really important for employers to schedule shifts and especially high-risk tasks appropriately so they can avoid the negative impacts of fatigue that are naturally occurring, right? Uh, in a 24-hour period, uh, most people experience these fatigue dips just after midnight and just after lunchtime um, or mid-afternoon. So that that post-lunch slump is real. It's not a myth. There's actually a lot of science to back that up. Where can employers begin to take steps toward managing and mitigating fatigue risk among workers? And also, what habits can workers adopt during waking hours and around bedtime that might boost their quantity and quality of sleep? Sure. So I'm really glad this is a two-part question because it really takes this this notion of a shared responsibility 
or a shared responsibility approach to properly manage fatigue. Uh, employers are responsible, we all know, for ensuring a, a safe work environment, but workers have to do their part as well. They have just as much responsibility to manage their lifestyle behaviors that might negatively impact their fatigue or their alertness at work. And, uh, you know, just I'll, I'll try to answer this worker habit question first. Um, just uh, in terms of lifestyle choices, there these present themselves as risk factors, and, and workers are responsible for uh, monitoring or managing their use of caffeine, um, alcohol, or other drugs, whether prescription or not, uh, the physical activity level that they engage in, um, their sleep habits, or, or even hobbies, hobbies that might keep them up late at night, for example. And uh, I appreciate this is this podcast is, is taking place right around uh, daylight savings. And I've got some clients um, on the West Coast that I think in the fall, when we when when it stays a little lighter, longer, you know, folks are inclined to go hunting <laughs> or fishing or you know spend spend um, time in the early evening into the late evening that might be impacted their ability to uh, show up fit for work uh, the next day or for their next shift. Um, in terms of sleep hygiene, it's really important to limit caffeine. Now, some folks rely on too much coffee, and the recommended intake a day is only 300 milligrams. So that's about three cups of coffee. And the earlier in the day that you can consume your caffeine, the better. Um, it, it takes a while for our bodies to metabolize both caffeine and alcohol. And so, you know, the earlier, the better. Not, I, I'm not suggesting you drink your alcohol in the morning, <laughs> but you should definitely have an alcohol curfew as a protective habit uh, for sleep, right? So like I said, it takes a while for our bodies to metabolize those two uh, substances, and they're both known to interrupt our sleep. So... Um, let's see. Finally, uh, creating a sleep sanctuary, they say, is a, is a really good habit. So avoiding blue light like um, you get from your phones or TVs, other electronics is really important before um, you attempt to sleep. Keeping your bedroom cool and dark are uh, other helpful tips to promote good sleep as well. Um, let's see, let's, let's go back to what employers can do. So I'll give a shout out about five years ago, our own Emily Whitcomb, who's currently the director of innovation at NSC. She worked really hard to stand up this fatigue initiative and they produced a lot of great guidance and tools to help employers take the proper steps to manage and mitigate fatigue risk. And all of these resources are available on our website in, in, a, in a pretty cool fatigue toolkit for employers. Um, several things that employers can do to mitigate the fatigue risk in their workplace. Uh, first, employers um, should definitely provide health education and wellness programs that help their workers better understand the risks that they're dealing with. Uh, one specific area has to do with sleep disorder screening. This is becoming a more common part of um, companies' wellness programs and can help identify medical-related solutions to worker fatigue. I was um, really interested to learn just a few years ago that there are, uh, I think, upwards of 20 diagnosable sleep disorders, and some of them don't require screening overnight at a hospital. So if you have trouble sleeping, definitely um, uh, talk to your doctor about ways to, to get screened. 
they um, they estimate about 70 million Americans are diagnosed with a sleep disorder, but about 25 million Americans are thought to be dealing with a sleep disorder undiagnosed. So this is really important for us all to consider. Employers can also ensure that workers have access to employee assistance programs where they can consult confidentially with third-party support systems or providers to help them deal with stressors in their life that could be impacting their fatigue and alertness. Um, There's a lot of confounding factors and contributing factors that can lead an an employee to feeling fatigue. And, and, um, you know, this is part of that shared responsibility where, where employers can provide assistance through those EAP programs. Um, Let's see, another element of NSC's fatigue toolkit has to do with policies and practices, and this is really concerning the structural impacts to fatigue. Um, It's really important to institute daily and weekly limits on work schedules and uh, shift returns, as well as scheduling high-risk tasks outside of known fatigue zones. So um, I do a lot of work in the mining industry, and I have a client there in the Midwest that has just instituted a fatigue-friendly schedule. So at nine hours on shift, workers are instructed to clock out. And workers are really mad about that. That impacts their their uh, their overtime and their earning um, potential. But uh, from, a, from an employer's responsibility standpoint, it reduces the risk for, for an injury, an incident, or God forbid, a fatality. So that, that's one thing that, that workers can do or employers can do for workers to keep them safe. They can also arrange breaks strategically. They can um, make sure that effective countermeasures are provided for employees to, to help them better manage their own fatigue areas where folks might be able to, to lay down to take a, a quick um, rest or nap is important. Having um, access to clean, cold water is important or healthy snacks um, instead of you know filling vending machines with candy bars and high-carb snacks. Um, it really gets back to that shared responsibility concept. How can both parties come together to, to mitigate this risk that, that we're all dealing with? Uh, a final but really important step that I think employers should keep in mind has to do with uh, both collecting and learning from relevant data. So companies should be first always asking employees for their feedback. Um, they can review incident data, look for trends related to fatigue, related to incidents. There are also a lot of new fatigue detection solutions in the marketplace, and those could be used as a safeguard to prevent fatigue events before they happen. Lori, could you tell us about some emerging topics, research, or other attributes of the fatigue initiative at NSC that our listeners should know about? Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of attention uh, given to fatigue and related topics right now. Uh, NIOSH has a lot of great resources. For over 10 years, I believe they've been promoting this concept of total worker health. And this really does well to bring attention um, to areas that are uh, less physically um, tangible, I guess I'd say. Uh, so, So total worker health, this concept seeks to uh, connect the impact of health and worker well-being to what we've traditionally focused on in health and safety um, to be, you know, more related to physical safety, okay? So we know, though, that there are a lot of intangibles or things that happen outside of work that affect our alertness levels and our fatigue risk at work. So I'm really happy 
to see this attention to fatigue. Um, we we do see some industries, you know, so you know, transportation related industries mainly that have regulatory standards that guide uh, practices in the workplace to protect against the risk. But I, I really believe that that we'll see mandated regulations in this area for all industries, and I, I think we I think they're needed, right? Uh, I'm really proud of the impact that NSC has made over the years in in raising awareness around fatigue risk and also providing the guidance and the tools to help employers ensure a safe working environment for their employees. In fact, since the fatigue initiative was stood up about five years ago, um, some additional work has been done to help employers tackle this issue. NSC has really done well to help shape a new understanding around fatigue, and it's related to this broader topic of impairment. So fatigue is just one factor contributing to impairment risk. And we're finding that there are a lot of other interrelated issues, um, including mental distress, health, medical health, and just personal well-being that that may be playing a role here. Uh, Just last year, I helped uh, the impairment practice area with a project to identify impairment detection technologies that employers might consider implementing or or just or trying out uh, for workplace safety, we found uh, 15 different technologies that could detect impairment caused from multiple sources, including fatigue. And the majority of them were developed around this effort of mitigating fatigue risk. And now they're realizing the benefit to detect impairment from multiple sources. Um, NSC also has a Work to Zero initiative. It's a fatality prevention initiative focused on the use of safety technology to save lives at work. So through that initiative, we have um, lots of tools and other resources to assist companies in their journey to implement safety technology um, to save lives at work. Um, finally, if I, I've got to give a personal plug, if employers need a higher level of assistance, NSC's consulting services, which I help to lead now, can help. We can help companies develop a formal fatigue risk management system or integrate mitigation strategies into an existing system. Uh, we can even help companies pilot um, or implement one of those fatigue or impairment detection technologies. There's there's really a lot of ways that both employers and employees can work together to mitigate this risk that we're all dealing with. Um, and in our current state of work, I, I, I think it's really important that we do. Well, thank you once more, Lori, for sharing your knowledge and expertise on this topic. Certainly a lot of great takeaways for folks listening. Uh, thanks for being our guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, it was, it was great. As we approach the end of this episode, it's about that time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. And to get things started, I will talk about the um, Biden administration's budget request that came out here in early-ish March. Yes, yeah, so the, the Biden administration is seeking a budget increase of more than $106 million for OSHA and about $40 million increase for enforcement and a $23 million increase for federal compliance assistance. The administration also wants about 142 additional OSHA inspectors. So um, to give a little bit of education when the president comes out with a budget request, it's basically a wish list or kind of um, showing the administration's priorities. And and given that this is a divided Congress, you know, I highly doubt they're going to get anywhere near 
that amount of money. So how about you, Barry? Well, Alan, it's pretty apropos that you, a native of Memphis, Tennessee, throws it to me for this portion of our our podcast. What I'm going to talk about is a story I wrote for safetyandhealthmagazine.com, and that is uh, the New York City Department of Buildings uh, did a really unique set of PSA videos about construction falls. And they're really unique because um, they took a little bit different tone, kind of a fun tone with them. Uh, for example, there in one video, there are two construction workers uh, during a, you know, uh, a New York Fashion Week type photo shoot, uh, walking down a runway with correct personal protective gear on. Uh, there's also, for my friend Alan from Memphis, a video featuring Elvis, an Elvis impersonator. And, and during the video, the Elvis impersonator attempts to put on a fall protection harness. Uh, he can't quite get it right. Uh, and then he's asked to leave the job site by the supervisor because he does not have the required safety training card for city job sites in New York. And the site supervisor, as Elvis is walking away, says... Elvis has left the building. So one more thing to add is my mom was a huge Elvis fan and and listened to a lot of Elvis when I was a kid. And, and I would say my favorite Elvis song would be Suspicious Minds. So Kevin, as I throw it to you, tell me your favorite Elvis song before you tell me what you learned this month. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. To, it would be remiss to not do that if we're going to take the discussion this way. At, at any rate, uh, my, my favorite would be uh, All Shook Up which uh, also is uh, maybe not my favorite item on the list at Ted Drew's, uh, an iconic ice cream place or frozen custard, I should say, for any St. Louisans listening. But it's uh, awfully tasty. It's called the All Shook Up, and it's uh, custard and then Reese's peanut butter cups and bananas, which we all know is a favorite. Maybe not Reese's, but peanut butter and banana, certainly a favorite of Elvis's. Um, I know we're going to throw it to Alan for his reaction after I share what I learned, but real briefly, we'd be remiss to not talk about Elvis, which I don't think we've done in the three plus years of this podcast and not mention our, our fine editor, Melissa Ruminski, who is a very big Elvis fan. So um, we'll be interested. To, I'm sure we'll poll her and we can get back to you listeners on her favorite Elvis song. Um, at any rate, what, what I learned uh, has to do with some things afoot with uh, FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, had uh, had a news alert about uh, a letter that the acting administrator, Billy Nolan, had recently sent to laser manufacturers and distributors, just as there's been quite the surge of incidents in which um, pilots can be distracted or temporarily blinded when lasers are pointed in or on aircraft. In 2006, which I guess is farther back than we might care to to think or admit, but that year there were 384 such incidents that the agency had reported, but in 2022, there were a little bit less than 9,500, and that was after an all-time high 9,700 plus in 2021. So the letter from Nolan just, it reminds folks that this can be uh, a federal crime. It, uh, there, there's an accompanying video that says uh, this offense can result in fines up to $250,000 or up to five years in jail. So again, there's there's a, a passage that just says lasers might seem like a toy or an office tool or a game, but they can incapacitate pilots and put thousands of passengers at risk every year. Well, Alan, you've already shared what you learned, but how about you and the King? What's your favorite Elvis song? <laughs> I, I have to go with Suspicious Minds, too, but I, I also like C.C. Ryder. Um, and I was just thinking that uh, blue suede shoes are probably not the safest on the work site. So, you know, don't wear those, um, <laughs> even if you're the King. Is there something important that you learned this month? 
Share it with us via email at safehealth at nsc.org. Well, we're nearing the end of this episode, but before the official bona fide conclusion and outro, had a brief reflection that I wanted to share. And I thank Barry and Alan and um, aforementioned Melissa and, and Jenny Ario, our managing editor, just for giving this legs on this platform and, and suggesting the podcast for it. Wanted to share um, a reflection just about a relationship with now a, a late uh, CSP who some of our listeners may know and might be a familiar face at various trade shows. So appreciate your, your time and, and for everybody listening. So certified safety professional Amy Stewart and I began following one another on Twitter before connecting through a more primitive means. Do you remember postcards? Amy did, and her choice to sporadically send me one from her Mount Vernon, Ohio home around the holidays years ago still brings delight. For many falls thereafter, we found one another after opening session of the NSC Safety Congress and Expo to say hello. Even in a sea of thousands, the pursuit proved rather easy. Amy, who long engaged with the National Safety Council's Transportation Safety Division, usually sat in the front row. Her presence at each show and around the occupational safety world will now endure in spirit. Amy, 65, died at her home in October after a short illness. The sad news reached my mailbox in February, courtesy of a letter from a friend of Amy. I'll miss my association with Amy, no question, but in the tradition of our last face-to-face encounter and its unexpected parting gifts, aspire to keep the essence going. Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, a college professor with whom I've remained in touch wrote about a baseball beat writer who I grew up reading. The story of the beat writer's penchant for penning postcards while traveling around North America inspired me on multiple levels. This, coupled with a high school classmate's social media post about still staying close with his kindergarten teacher, sent me into writing. Whether by letter or postcard, I sought to swat away the disconnectedness of the pandemic, one stamp at a time. I didn't get the opportunity to tell Amy of this hobby until September, when we reconnected at the 2022 NSC Congress and Expo in San Diego. She smiled at the story and my recollection of her holiday postcard, which showed horses and other features of her home. She then reached into her bag to offer a handful of postcards adorned with the American flag. That day, I found a mailbox near the hotel to see whether one of Amy's old glories could beat her back to central Ohio. That week, I met the baseball beat writer in question on the hotel elevator. He was in town to cover a series at Petco Park in San Diego, and I'd returned from a souvenir shop to buy what else? Postcards. It all seemed serendipitous then, but learning about Amy's death reinforced the power of relationships, even those that we might only revisit occasionally. Human connection is a vital fuel that can boost worker engagement and performance. Are there challenges to recreating camaraderie amid the expansion of remote work and hybrid office environments? Of course, but employers still try. Some aim to channel water cooler talk and laughter by being more conversational during portions of virtual team meetings. Others organize virtual trivia nights, escape rooms, or related activities. The proverbial old school remains in session two. Well before our phone cameras processed photos by the second and 140 characters were king, there was volleying communication via the Pony Express. It may be outdated, but it still is effective. The late Amy Stewart, CSP, bears proof. Thanks for joining us for this month's episode. Listening to Kevin's thoughts about Amy Stewart make our team here at On the Safe Side appreciative of the connections we have with all of you, and we thank you for that. If you'd like to share some feedback, you can email us at safehealth@nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you rating and reviewing this podcast. To find stories such as our feature on fire drills and all the latest news from around the safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. Big thanks to all of our NSC colleagues behind the scenes who make this podcast go every month. Ryan Gruntish, Amy Bellinger, Debbie Meyer, Paul Walensky, Karen Lord, Melissa Riminski, and Jen Yario. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side. Mm-hmm.